everyone, welcome to another episode of Chinese Chippy Girl. My name is Georgia Ma, aka Ma Puyu, aka Chinese Chippy Girl. Speaking of which, I got slammed on social media a few weeks ago and I got properly slammed about my name and how I was using harmful stereotypes to the Chinese community. So I just wanted to point out that it's not a stereotype. I was brought up in a Chinese takeaway and worked there since I was about 10. As much as I hated working there, I feel thankful that I learned some lifelong lessons from my parents, teaching me the value of money and just seeing how hard they worked and the sacrifices they made to make sure there was food on the table. So when I created the podcast, I wanted to A, bring better EC, East and Southeast Asian representation, and B, talk about things which I felt I couldn't speak about when I was a kid, and C, give dedication to my parents who are the true heroes in my life. And that's where Chinese Chippy Girl came about. That just basically sums up my childhood. If this is the first episode you have listened to, which means welcome, welcome in Cantonese. And if you already listened to my shows, OMG, I absolutely love your support. And a bit of self-promo as I haven't done this in a while. But here's a few ways how you can help me grow my shows. If you're listening on Apple Pod, please give me a five-star review. And you can also write me a review too. Or please share this on your social media channels. I'm on Instagram, Chinese Chippy Girl. And I'm also on Twitter under Madam Scoop. But being honest with you, I only really use Twitter when I'm complaining to Holmes Courier. <laughs> Life in it. Before I introduce you to my next guest, I just have a small message on EC Eats. My sister from another mister, Anna Chan from Asian Leadership Collective, has organized a few things to help celebrate EC Eats one year anniversary. We created this campaign together almost a year ago. And if you want to find out more on how we started this, please take a listen to Series 1, Episode 10 of Chinese Chip Girl. My amazing friend Anna has organised an e-seats tour with China Exchange, where they will host a walking tour of Chinatown London on Sunday, 28th of November. I will also be there and tickets are still available. And also Little Yellow Rice Co. will also be holding Conjure Club as part of ECE celebration in Manchester on 30th of November. For more information, please visit Asian Leadership Collective or take a look at my grid. <sighs> wow, that's such a long intro. <laughs> I am now going to introduce you to Suki, aka SK, aka Scott. Suki and I have been chatting on Insta for a while and I met him in person in real life at the BC birthday party. I wanted to get him on the show after I watched a video of him via Kind Red Packet, Big Up Kind Red Packet, where he speaks about his life growing up as BBC, British-born Chinese. Plus, he speaks openly about being gay. I wanted to have him on the show as I think it's important to raise awareness and to listen to someone from the EC and LGBTQ community. So yay, welcome Suki. Oh, thank you very much, Georgie. I am oh. such a huge fan of your show. I, I mean, honestly, it's such an inspiration because I, I discovered your show during the pandemic, during the height of lockdown and at the start of all the Asian hate that we were experiencing. And I was just online, flicking through, trying to find, well, British Chinese voices and British Chinese takeaway kids to kind of connect with. <laughs> and yours was pretty much the only one that that was out Aww. there at the time. And I, it's such an honour to be on your podcast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I feel very honoured that you said yes to coming on the show because... <laughs> 
it's I'm just going to be honest with you it's a weird one because I've I want to challenge myself in this series and talk about things which maybe I feel quite uncomfortable talking about I want to talk about things and highlight some things which are brushed under the carpet I've spoken to a few people just online, people who have messaged me to say, I've listened to your show. Not many, but a few people have said to me that they've come from similar backgrounds as me. They're also from the EC community. They are brought up in the UK and they're also gay as well. And they've said to me on separate occasions that they found it quite tough growing up. And even now they find it quite tough as well, not only because they're uh Chinese, Vietnamese, or just from the EC community, but they're also gay as well. Do you want to go ahead and give us a bit more introduction about yes. who, who you are, where you're quote unquote really from? <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> take um, it away. Well, I'll, I'll, first, I'll start with building on what you just said. Part of the reason that I decided to make the film for Kind Red Packet, and one of the reasons I agreed to do this podcast was. Because I, I was sat there during the pandemic, during all this hate, having a bit of an identity crisis and wishing that I could connect with similar voices. And there just weren't really that many out there. And then when it comes to this particular issue, again, there just isn't um, kind of any voice for people to, to hear. And then I took you know, such uh, inspiration from you. And I just thought, well, I'm just going to get out of my comfort zone. I'm going to get out of my little bubble, stop complaining that I don't know anyone with a similar background and just put myself out there. So, I mean, that that's the reason I'm doing this because I don't want to be one of those people that just sits back waiting for others to do all the work. And don't get me wrong, I'm not going to become a you know, activist overnight, <laughs> but but I I do feel that I have something to contribute, and I'm I'm in a in a space now in my life where I think I can do that. So mm-hmm. so that's that's the reason I've decided to do this podcast. So a, a little bit about me, in I'll try and keep it to a minute. Mm-hmm. I, I never really know where to start because it's quite. I've, I've had such a complicated background. So I'll start right from the very beginning. My parents are from Hong Kong. I'm one of four children. So I'm the middle older only son. But before anyone asked, I was never treated like a prince. You know, <laughs> my mom loved all her children equally. And to be honest, I think she loved the daughters more. So, <laughs> so I, I was never ever spoiled as, as the only son, which I, I really resent. <laughs> Wait, I need to stop you there. If I asked your sisters, what would they say? They would, would they agree with you? They would or agree. Would they go, no, actually. They, would they agree? Well, maybe my younger sisters wouldn't, but they're <laughs> a lot younger, so they don't really understand. Okay. <laughs> right. So my parents were first-generation immigrants into this mm-hmm. country, came with nothing. My big sister was born in Preston. I was born in Devon. Then we moved to Glasgow. So I spent most of my early childhood in Glasgow, where my parents worked for other people. Then when I was 13, we moved to Barnsley because my parents managed to get their own takeaway. So I spent all of my teenage years in Barnsley, secondary school, A-levels. Moving from Glasgow, which was such a cosmopolitan city with lots of Chinese people, and then moving to Barnsley in this former coal mining town, called Goldthorpe. So if anyone knows where Goldthorpe is, I I applaud you. 
it, it was such a it was such a strange experience. Um, mm-hmm. I remember the first day um, going to school there, and all the kids were saying to me, "Hey up, hey up." And I honestly thought they were all swearing at me. I was just like, F you all, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so we had a takeaway there. Worked pretty much every day in the takeaway, yeah. after school, weekends. So very similar story to yours, Georgie. So I won't, yeah. Brilliant. We'll, we'll skip all of that. We know what it's like. It doesn't, it doesn't we know what it's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then somehow I managed to get into Cambridge for university. So I did law at Cambridge. Very good. Um, good. (laughs) Then I graduated, couldn't find a job. I took a gap year, which ended up being two years. I spent Mm -hmm. one year in America, and then I spent part of the second year in Taiwan, pretending to learn Mandarin, but not actually, just like went out meeting friends. And I, I spent more weekends in Hong Kong than I did in Taiwan learning Mandarin. And then I came back to the UK and finished law school, which I did in Oxford. Then I managed to get a job in London. And yeah, and then I spent 14 years in London working as a property lawyer, dealing with the London market, dealing with international clients. I was a partner and a director at a law firm. And then the pandemic hit and I'd kind of already reached all the the kind of goals that I felt I had to achieve. Actually, Mm. for for me, I never dreamed of being uh, getting getting that far in my career. So in some ways, it was beyond my expectations. Mm -hmm. But it's something I talk more about in the video that I got to that stage and Mm. it didn't really... I don't know, it just didn't really make me happy. It didn't really matter to me. I think that is partly to do with being gay. You get to that stage in life, career's going well, but I don't have a family or I don't have responsibilities like that. And so during the pandemic, I just had a real identity crisis. Like, who am I? Why am I doing this? Like, why do I not feel content, satisfied, happy? So I made the decision to just handed my notice. I stepped down as a partner. I gave back my shares, resigned my directorship. Wow. And moved. That's big. Yeah. Big. I, I mean, I'm quite surprised. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I will wow. say that I'm not sure if it's something we've discussed before, but I, I did have counseling for quite a while during that time. And that really, really helped me to make mm. that decision. So I, I quit my job and I moved to Manchester. And the reason I moved to Manchester was because I knew there was a big, like, second-generation British-born Chinese East Asian community here. But it's mm-hmm. another big city, very diverse, and there would be things to do. So mm-hmm. I wanted to move somewhere where I wouldn't be, uh, well, I would feel not only more welcome, but also more British. To actually back up back up so you are like an Asian like parents golden child you went to Cambridge graduated from Oxford you then became a lawyer OMG OMG your parents and family must be so proud of you and I know if my mum's listening to this she'll be like put you out why did you not get his career choice (laughs) but I think it's one of those where I mean, I know a few people who have worked so hard and so successfully that they get to a point when they've hit 
a certain level in their career, like a senior level, and they just think, you know what, that's just not for me anymore. So they just take a career break. And I totally, totally respect them because it takes guts to to get to that level and to realize that it's not for you. It's not, it's not satisfying your goals mentally. It's exhausting. And yeah, so it's, it's great that you've done that. When you told your family about this, I'm curious to know what they said. Oh, well, my, my parents were actually really supportive. So my relationship with my parents is, is again, kind of, I wouldn't say it was typical of most Chinese families. My parents were actually very good at making sure that we looked after ourselves, that money wasn't um, always the like the goal. Like they had to make money to support us, but but they didn't kind of teach us to just pursue money for the sake of it. But growing up, I had a kind of difficult relationship with them because I always... I mean, I go back to what I said that I wasn't treated like the prince of the family. And I actually <laughs> genuinely really resented that growing up. I'm just like, like, hang on a minute. I'm the only son here. Like, why am I, ha- why, why my presence not as good as my sister's or like, why does she was older than me? Uh, she was one year older than me. And again, we came from a quite a poor background growing up and and my parents didn't really know anything back then either. So she would get to go on all the school trips and she did everything first because she was older. And then it got to my years, like, oh, we don't have any money for you. I'd have a massive, massive tantrum. <laughs> <gasps> and then like I used to I used to spend more time with my relatives in, in Glasgow and working in their takeaways, because a lot of them, they either didn't have sons or they hadn't had children yet. So I was like their little adopted son and I was treated like a prince by them, but like not by my parents. <laughs> Aww. Oh, that's so cute. But going back to uh, when, when I told them that I was going to quit this job, they, they were actually very happy for me because they, mm-hmm. I mean, by that point, even without the pandemic, I hadn't really seen my parents very much. And I didn't see them that often, even before then, because I was just so busy. I was so stressed. I was I was developing all these kind of like health conditions just from the stress. I'd have to go to the doctors for steroid cream for breakouts of eczema. Oh, really? There'd be periods of time where where I'd have to work seven days a week. And when I get stressed, I actually stop eating. So I'm not a kind of stress eater. I actually just like forget to eat. So uh, I remember the first couple of years in London when I first started working, when I was doing my training contract. At the end of my training contract, I, I'm just slightly above five foot ten, but I weighed eight stone. And I was, wow. I was like, you know, 27 years old. And like I just lost so much weight from just the stress of working. And then living in London, all my parents are always saying, oh, the, the, the air quality is terrible. The water's terrible. <laughs> so they, they, they were actually really supportive, but mainly because they wanted me to move back north anyway. But I was never going to move to where they live in Doncaster now because there's, there's nothing for me to do there. It's, it's, it, that's very much suburbia for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, whilst Manchester, obviously, there's a lot going on. It sounds like you were having a really tough time and sorry to hear that as well. So it sounds like you had a really tough time and you spoke about you had like identity issues. Mm. Can you tell me more about that? Like, did you, do you feel you had those identity issues before 
you moved to London. Do you, do you feel like you had that when you were growing up as well, or do you think it kind of like kicked in when no. during the pandemic? So I think what happened was that like growing up experiencing racism as a child, but when you're a child, you just kind of get on with it. You experience it and you get on with it. Actually, I, I think I was quite a tough, angry child anyway. So even if I was bullied or whatever, I, I didn't really I didn't really experience it in that way. I didn't really get upset. So like as a child, you kind of just take it in and you brush it off. And then growing up, when you get older, you, I, I think the way I dealt with it was I just kind of ignored it. And I ignored it for so long. I ignored race issues, identity issues. I think like you said before, I like growing up in this country, I really just wanted to be like British. I wanted to be considered to be English for people just to see me as like another white person. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like didn't deal with identity issues for a long time and and, and just brushed everything aside. And I, I think with the like East Asian community, it, it's there's like lots of different nuances because we've got positive discrimination, we've got model minority. And it wasn't until things like we had Black Lives Matter at the start of pandemic before the Asian hate. And it wasn't until that point, until all this stuff started to happen, that it kind of it, it kind of all hit hit me in one go that I've been burying all these feelings, all these identity issues for so long. I didn't even consider like positive discrimination or modern minority as being racist until people started talking about how damaging it was because until then I'd pretty much been brainwashed into thinking oh it's good for me I'm I'm slightly protected and I'm going to make the most of it I mean the whole time during my career every time someone saw me I'd be like oh Scott you go speak to the Chinese client I was like what language do they speak and even if they speak Cantonese or Mandarin or whatever my Cantonese is terrible I can barely order in a restaurant (laughs) (laughs) it's funny just hearing say you had like identities because I felt I did as well and just like you and there was a lot of things which made me feel very uncomfortable hearing like when oh this is so cringeworthy but when I went on a date with this guy he said to me he's got yellow fever oh so cringing and it was so uncomfortable but at the time I felt it was maybe like a compliment because he liked Asian girls but now it's just like, ugh, ugh. it's like, oh, get away from me. Needless to say, mm. <laughs> I don't speak to him anymore. <laughs> we only went on a couple of dates. And there's other things like people would just think that, oh, East and Southeast Asian people are just good citizens. They don't confront and they're good at maths and they're studious and, and they're, they're quiet and and they're not Larry. And in a way, on paper, some people think, okay, they are good citizens. But for me as an individual, I am the opposite of quiet. <laughs> uh, I am so shit at maths. I can barely spell. It's, I've got, I just, I just talk so much crap as well. So I am not that model minority myth. And sometimes the modern minority myth, it played against me because... People would think that I'm smart and I'm academic and I'm very studious and I'm clever. I remember when I started a job, a new startup company, a tech company, and we did one of those icebreaker training things and they put us into teams. And then 
one of the activities that we had to do was like a maths activity. Everyone was wearing name badges. And then this guy said to our team, oh, put Georgie in charge. She'll be good at math. But I felt really disappointed because I wasn't good at maths. They were going to put me in charge. I'm just going to I'm just going to really embarrass myself and I'm just going to feel like such a failure. And then I just went, oh, okay. And I remember I just went, oh, can somebody else, is there there anybody else good at my salary? Is there anybody else? And then we ended up doing it. And then I was so shit at that task. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and I just felt like I disappointed the team, but also I went home and I just felt really disappointed in myself. I was like, oh, why couldn't I even do this? Why did I struggle? And then the other part of me was like, why are you stressing so much? Why could you not have told them that you can't do math? And then yeah. it was just such a, it was just a thing that just happened so quickly. And and I just felt, I just felt really let down because of the model minority yeah. myth, because these people thought I was going to be good at math yeah. because I'm Chinese. So I think that was, to me, that's just an example of how, these stereotypes can be quite harmful, even yeah. though on paper they're not. Because they, so, they make they make you feel so small for, oh, for, for no reason, for no good reason, yeah. because they are not judged in those ways. Part of this does come down to skin colour and how you look. Yeah. You have a room full of white people in meetings, class, work. You don't assume anything about them. They could be anything, but people will immediately assume something about us, which is really unfair. And and that has been like, that has been part of the identity struggle because mm-hmm. my attitude was like, fine, if that's what they think of me, I'm going to give them what they want and more, which worked up to a certain point. But then, yeah, it fell in on itself yeah. uh, recently. I want to ask you a very big question. I want to ask you about your about your sexuality. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about this because I know it's something that not a lot of East and Southeast Asians talk about. Not saying everybody, but it's not one that's that can be openly discussed. Yeah. So I mean, I'll start by saying that I'm kind of like I, I am like out, but maybe not out out. I don't go out in the street and shout it out loud. But within the, and this is what we'll discuss, within the confines of our culture, our families, I'm probably a lot more out than other people in my situation. And I, I, I think that's partly just down to my personality, trying to be a bit more confident and trying to get out of my comfort zone. And also I've reached an age now where I can't keep pandering to my parents and to you know the family and to cultural values because it's not doing me any good and and this comes down to a lot of the decisions I made over the last year to quit my job and to move to Manchester I need to deal with all of these things like now otherwise it's going to be too late um mm-hmm. anyway I'll start from the beginning as well on, on this issue so so I, I I knew I was gay when I was 11 I, I I just it wasn't really it wasn't really anything I, I just knew, and um, yeah I fancy the boys and things like that and uh, but I was we're kids I was too young like kissing and dating and all that kind of stuff was much less important than getting your grades <laughs> so uh, like so I just knew and I I just kind of buried it I buried it as much as I could 
Mm-hmm. And I tried to date girls. I had dates with girls and I had dates at university. Like for my first year at university, I really, really tried to get over it, um, mm-hmm. hoping it was a phase, hoping it was a choice, even though I knew it wasn't, because all I could hear in my head was like kind of my parents' disapproval. And so there was just that that kind of that pressure to to have a normal life, to follow the path. And and culturally this is is this is the same for most people. But I think in our communities it's there's a kind of extra pressure for that to happen, mm. you know, to find a partner, to have kids and all of that kind of stuff. My close friends knew. Uh, I wasn't I think a I think some people would describe me as closeted, but I don't think I was. I wasn't in denial. I just needed to deal with it in my own way. Like I said, I'm not one of these people that's just going to go out there as like, I'm here, I'm queer, get over it. It's That's just not going to work for me. And it's not going to work for the people around me. Um, again, didn't really deal with it. Just focused on work, focused on studying, Getting into Cambridge was actually so, so stressful because I went to a state school in Barnsley. It wasn't a very good school, really rough. And ending up in Cambridge was such a shock to the system. Everyone there, their you know, parents were barristers, surgeons, lords and ladies. And there I was. And I was just like, oh, I, I just don't belong here. And the, the work was really hard. I wasn't used to working like that. Mm-hmm. So that that kind of that didn't really help in embracing my sexuality. Again, it was just so easy to bury it and focus on something else. And I will say that I, I did try to go to gay LGBT events. I did try to go to the bots and I did try to meet people. It's the kind of place where you've got a lot of like hoorah Henry's and all these like well-to-do kids who've had very liberal upbringings who parents let them do anything they like and they just be in your face about it it's like why aren't you kind of making a big deal about it why aren't you out and proud why aren't you wearing like hot pants all that kind of stuff I'm just like why like why why I just like that's not me I need to do it in my own way and mm-hmm. and also when when you're young as well everyone's always gossiping oh he must be gay is he gay is she gay and it's just like oh mm-hmm. my god just like I, I just didn't have any time for it so yeah. I just buried it again the close friends who needed to know knew so in terms of that journey it, it just got suppressed like being gay was like the least of my concerns until after university and then after university because I didn't have a job to go straight into I went traveling and I was 21 by that point and I mean, this is going to be too much information for some of your viewers, but I was just like, I'm 21. And if I don't lose my virginity, I'm just going to like run into the ocean and never come back. (laughs) So like, so I was in America, I was in a different country. I wasn't worried about anyone finding out about anything. So it's just like, right, I'm going to go out. Go for it. I'm going to to try and meet someone and I'm not coming back a virgin. So that's, so that's how that started and what yeah. like again too much information but it was it, no I love it, it I love it you know it wasn't it, it was a terrible terrible kind of physical experience but mm. he was a model so <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh uh, so that that was like I was like oh you know what if like if this hot kind of 
Puerto Rican model like can find me attractive, then right, it can't be all that bad. <laughs> <laughs> so how long were you away traveling for then? So I spent I spent just under a year in America, but I, I wasn't really traveling. I, I went over there. Um, I had a job working at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel as a cook. Nice, um, so very I like, nice. So I worked as a cook in their Colorado resort during the winter okay. season. And it was just, it was an amazing experience and so fun. But and I've got some great stories about that, including making breakfast for George W. Bush Sr. MTV took over the resort as well. But as fun as it was, I didn't really enjoy cooking as a as a profession. So I decided when it got to the end of the season, right, I'm going to see some friends like in California. And then I came back to the UK because I was starting to miss my family as well and applied for law school, but law school would start the following year. So then I went over to Taiwan to, because I thought, oh, I'm going to add something to my CV. And if everyone thinks that I speak Chinese, by which they mean Mandarin, right, I'm going to go and learn Mandarin. We had friends in Taiwan. So I thought, okay, I'll give that a go. But I, I just really, I didn't enjoy it. And I spent every weekend, like in between, like Monday to Friday classes. And then every weekend I'd go to Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> So, so yeah, so during, you know, during that time, it, it, it wasn't really like a sexual awakening or anything. It was just like, right, I had a mission to lose my virginity by 21. And then that kind of happened. And then it's kind of, oh, then, then what? Like, what do I yeah. do now? I was busy traveling and doing other stuff. Again, it wasn't mm-hmm. a big priority. It was like one of the biggest problems was already solved. So the mm-hmm. next stage could wait a bit longer. <laughs> And then I went to do law school in Oxford. And at that time, like, I, I tried dating girls again. But I mean, like, this is no offense to women anywhere in the world. You <laughs> just don't do it for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. No offense taken. <laughs> like, you're totally, totally safe hanging out with me. So don't worry. Um, so... So all that happened and then you had your phone in America and then you came back and then you went to Oxford and then you tried to start dating girls again. Did you feel you needed to do that because maybe you were back on home soil? Yeah, yeah. again, I could feel the pressure of my parents just thinking, well, I, I, I don't really know what what they were thinking it was there was a lot of fear involved but it, it was partly I just knew they wouldn't approve and I just knew that they would want me to have a simpler normal life quote unquote normal yeah. whatever normal is yeah. anyone that knows what normal is please dm me <laughs> <laughs> let me know as well so I, I tried that but I, I was I dated some guys as well like very secretly of course <laughs> <laughs> Nothing really happened in in Oxford because, again, I was coming out with a like distinction in my law school was more important than dating or anything. And plus, like I did have a few encounters that were a bit weird and that kind of put me off. It, it's not like boys and girls, men and women dating. It's very acceptable, very normal. That with when you're trying to meet with another gay guy, it's weird. It's kind of secretive. It's awkward you don't really know that there's no kind of rule book to it. So Mm -hmm. it's like 
you, you can't really go on a date. I, I just didn't feel like there was any kind of safe space for me to go and kind of meet people and do that. It sounds like it's quite quite hush hush and yeah. it's quite uncomfortable. Yeah. Maybe I don't I, know. I mean that that's certainly my experience. So I'm not going to speak for everyone, but Uh, But I do genuinely think, which is something we'll explore a bit more later as well, is that Mm -hmm. like being Chinese, British Chinese, looking this way probably had a big, not just the culture, but just just the simple fact that I looked this way had an impact on all of that. So again, like, so I finished law school, then I moved to London. I thought, right, great. I'm in London. You've got Soho, you've got all these amazing clubs and all these kind of things. Chinatown, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Do you do you remember there was a um restaurant called oh was it Jade Gardens in Wardour Street? Yes. Before it became Orient. Like, Is it now the Orient? Yeah. I don't know. You, there used to be Jade's Garden. There used to be a, an upstairs bit yeah, as well. Yeah. It looked quite it looked quite small from the outside, but it, it was, was actually huge. Was it quite big. Yeah. yeah. So that, that was the one I always used to go to, including right, the okay. family. And then, yeah. and then it became the Orient. But anyway, I moved to London, um, started my training contract. But then I tried to, I tried to devote some time into meeting people and going out. It is quite difficult if you're if you're not kind of if you're not being your true authentic self. It's quite hard to like go out there and enjoy yourself and be confident. Mm-hmm. No, I was shy. I was fearful of being judged I was fearful of being fetishized and just like and and also that the the, one of the biggest things for me growing up which is purely based on looks is that I felt really ugly I thought that the reason I didn't get any attention I see all my white friends going out having fun snogging people like men and women and gays everyone was having fun with each other and I wasn't. And I genuinely thought that it's because being Chinese meant that I was ugly. Mm-hmm. So I, I felt really self-conscious uh, about mm-hmm. how I looked. So that, like, that again held me back for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then I went out, a few kind of dates here and there, few like um, <laughs> few experiences that I won't share. <laughs> <laughs> a few, a few uh, acquaintances. <laughs> yeah, and by that point, oh, you know, all the apps are in rage. You've got the main one, which is Grinder. <laughs> but actually, my my first boyfriend, I, I actually just met him in a club, and it was a, it was actually a quite a strange meeting because at that point, I was kind of trying to meet more people, meet more gay. Mm-hmm guys as well and actually one of, one of my friends had a friend who was a gay Chinese guy and she said oh like you should meet up with him and we should go out and and then I, I think she was trying to set us up but then of course she was <laughs> but it really wasn't going to work we were, we were just like it just wasn't going to work and but I went out with him and I went clubbing with him and he was telling me to like right you, you just need to make the most of of it and you have to if if People think you're exotic and you should just like, you should just like take it as a compliment. People that are attracted to you, yeah, they might fetishize you, but just take it as a compliment. Mm. I mean, years later, I could see how damaging that is. But at the mm. time, it's like, like, fine, okay. If they want Chinese, I'm going to give them Chinese. And actually that very same night, he was giving me all this terrible advice. I, I actually met my first partner, 
you know, I totally can't remember what it was called. Actually, no, I do. It was called Ghetto, which doesn't exist anymore. Do you remember a club called Ghetto that um, was in Soho? No, uh, I don't remember Ghetto. Uh, Whereabouts was it? Whereabouts in Soho? I, t- I, I can't really remember now. It was so long ago. That, yeah, so I was in there and this guy, this guy with like curly blonde hair just comes up to me and just like, like starts dancing with me and starts giving me compliments. I'm like, oh oh my God, oh my God, someone likes me. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, you know, he buys me a beer and everything. Mm. And then, and then, yeah, I was with him for almost eight years. <gasps> wow, yeah, well, that's a very long time. I even bought a flat with him. He met my parents. Wow. Well, actually, so I met him before I came out to my family. And mm-hmm. I, I, looking back now, I feel a bit guilty that one of the reasons that that relationship went on for so long was because I, I kind of used him to give me the emotional strength and stability to then come out to my family. So I was with my first partner for about a year, basically living with him. And then it just got to the point where I I don't want to keep lying to my parents about where I'm living, who I'm with. Oh, so your parents didn't know that you were living with her? No. They didn't know about him at all this bit? Okay. No. As far as they were concerned, I was living with a friend. <laughs> so I, like, once I felt that our relationship was secure, then I decided, right, now is the time to tell my parents. But in the run-up to that, part of the reason I needed that security, I wanted to find a partner, is because I was... I was probably 90% sure that my family would disown me. I was, I was convinced that there was a high chance that I would never, ever speak to them again. So part of the reason for working so hard to have financial security, part of the reason for like finding a partner, all of that was to give me like a cushion for the worst that could happen. So I, I'd already told my big sister, I think a couple of months before I told my parents and my big sister, she was okay about it. Like there was no judgment. I I think she was very supportive and she's the typical, she looks after everyone. Big sister. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like she, she took it fine and she knew. Oh, she knew. So she, oh no, no, no. She knew. Well, she, well. She knew, well, I told her and then she knew before I told my okay. my parents. Did she suspect before you told her? I, I'm not sure. I've never actually asked her directly. Uh, again, I, I think she just didn't really think about it. I mean, like, she had her own relationship problems, so <laughs> mine, were, okay. mine were of little concern. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So I'd already told my sister, so I, I knew at least like I would have contact with the family through my big sister. I hadn't told my little sisters yet. And, and actually, before I told my parents, I called my aunt in Hong Kong. So my mum's youngest sister, who we call Sai Yi. Yeah, so yeah. I, I called her because like, she's the young one, she's the fashion one, and she knows yeah. lots of gay guys. And I called her and I was like, I, you know, I, I have no idea how I managed to do all of this in Cantonese, but you know. <laughs> 
I called her and I said to her, I say, like, got a no, ying ying go, gong bay mammy, tang or yoga lamp, and yawa. And she was like, and then for the non Cantonese speakers, that basically translates to, Auntie, do you think I should tell my mum that I have a boyfriend? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, that's how I put it in my terrible, terrible Cantonese. And, you know, I can't quite remember what she said, but I remember like that, that basically she was like, don't tell your mum she'll have a heart attack. I can't remember how she said it, but I remember that that's what she meant. Like, just mm-hmm. don't tell your mum. And, and then she kind of thought about like, I was on the phone to her for about, you know, a good hour. And then she kind of thought about it. And she's like, if you want to tell it, if you have to tell her, then tell her. But she'll be heartbroken. And I, and I did mm-hmm. kind of think, oh, God, this is like my young, cool aunt saying that her own big sister wouldn't be able to handle it. But- you kind of wanted, I guess you can at that time, you kind of wanted permission from yeah. your aunt to say, yeah, go for it. Yeah, and because I also wanted to make sure that because I know my parents will be very kind of secretive about it. And I, I kind of wanted to to kind of test the waters a bit with people that I trusted and people that I didn't mind knowing just so that if, if my mom has a hard time then my aunt would maybe call call her sister and just say like he's your son get over it <laughs> yeah but in the end she still said to me don't tell her but it's your choice which you know yeah. is basically so so anyway I I drove up from London to see my parents and I was prepared to kind of drive up and drive straight back down but anyway I drove up and my, I told my sister, I told my sister, like, be there, be there when it happens. And my sister, who had been kind of quite cool and relaxed about everything beforehand, when I sat my parents, I can't remember why we were in my parents' bedroom, but I, maybe I was just like, I can't remember whether I made kind of a dramatic kind of thing, like, oh, we have to go upstairs and I don't want anyone else, the younger sisters to hear this yet. So in my parents' bedroom, and my big sister was there, and I told them, and my parents were quite stunned. And then my big sister, who already knew, burst out crying. I was like, you already knew, why are you crying? <laughs> and, and then I kind of just said to my parents, okay, do you want time to process it? And I, I can just go back to London now or wherever, or I can go stay with my sister. And they were like, no, don't, don't go yet. We'll stay overnight. We'll talk in the morning. My dad didn't really say very much. And he, all he really said was, your mother loves you, something like that. And that's about it. And then he, mm-hmm. he left the room. And then my mom like, starts weeping and just says, this is not what we wanted for you. And she's like, is this because you're depressed? Is it because of your job in London? Mm-hmm. And so when, so when people ask me, and I know everyone's coming out story is different and it's valid and everything. This is just a different coming out story. When people say to me, oh, your parents must have known, like we can see you mincing a mile away. And I was just like, what? I am not like that at home. I don't mince around the takeaway serving people curry and chips. When I'm out and about and I can be more me, then fine. That's a bit camper. But at home, yes, I am the good Chinese son. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or at least I try to be. And so my parents, like, when all my Western friends say to me, oh, they must have known. I was just like, oh, for goodness sake, get over yourselves. Mm. Like, why can't you just respect my story? Why can't you just take it at face value that my parents didn't know? And this was a huge shock to them. And also, 
why can you not accept that I was scared that I was going to be completely ostracized and cast out of the family? Mm. I was I was fully, fully prepared mm. not to talk to my parents ever again. I think particularly from the Chinese culture, I know that there's not there's not a lot of gay representation. Like you don't really get gay TV stars or celebrities. And if they are, they probably just don't talk about it. This is just the way how I see mm. things. So I guess from our parents' point of view, it's just something that's not widely spoke about. There's just not that money, that much awareness. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the West, being gay is, is, is very acceptable. You, you have gay celebrities, there's gay representation, you have gay pride. And and that representation is out there. So for you to come out and to tell your parents, of course, it's going to be a big shock to them. Of course it is, because they probably never came across anyone that's gay who, who they know and someone gay that looks like us. It's, it's a big thing. My brother is also gay. My, my whole family know that he's gay. And he came out to the family probably about, oh my God, almost 20 years ago. And obviously it was a big shock to my parents. My mom and dad were devastated, absolutely devastated. I think it took my dad probably about, I think just under a year to just accept it and be like okay well that's fine okay whatever but for my mum even though she said she accepted it quote-unquote accepted his sexuality it still it took a years and years to fully fully accept it to the point where she wasn't in denial because sometimes she would call me and my mum would maybe say oh do you think he's going through a phase I'm like no he's not going through a phase mum it's 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 you know like I'm straight you're straight Andrew's gay it's like are you going through a phase am I going through a phase and and with my mum it's no secret that my brother is the golden child and he is he knows it she knows it everyone knows it everyone knows it so, and she was devastated and what Chinese cultures like as well. They, they like the boys, they favour the boys, particularly my mum. My family in the UK, they all know and they're all fine with it. I have this Dai, <laughs> my mum's older sister, and she lives in the Netherlands and she doesn't know my brother's gay. And my brother... Is, uh, my brother's a handsome chap actually he's very handsome he's very successful he's a doctor and my aunt is just like why is he not why is he not married where's his children <laughs> why is he not married when's the wedding where's his girlfriend and we're just like oh yeah you know he's just home on home on you know like he's really busy he's really busy but my auntie she'll speak to like all her friends from different places across the world and she'll try and basically match make my brother with these other girls and these girls can be uh, successful people in America and stuff and uh, I remember there's one time when I spoke to my brother about it I says oh Dai's just called me again she wants to set you up with someone my brother just laughs and says oh can you ask her to get a photo (laughs) (laughs) but 
But the thing is, we joke about it now. What would happen if we told Dai that my brother's gay, that he's not going to get married to a woman? My brother is really happy in a relationship with David, who we all love. Like, we love David. David, if you're listening, we love you. We all call him (laughs) Bebe. (laughs) But he's just so accepted in the family. He's been to family events with us they've got a dog together they've got a house together and they're so they're so well matched but there's a part of us like what if we tell Dai that this is David is my brother's partner and but the thing is it's like none of us have really spoken about it we all just know in our minds that we just don't tell Dai we're just we're just much of saying <laughs> we're doing that Asian <laughs> oh no I've just realised what I've just done much of saying much of saying don't say anything don't say anything but we just feel it's uh, she just doesn't need to know she's yeah she just doesn't need to know and if she does I think if she does find out there, there would just be so much like oh there'll just be so much uh, I don't know what the word is not gossip there'll just be so it'll just bring so much tension in the family because Mm. she's quite a tense person like she'll call me she'll call my mom and she'll probably say to my mom like why is he gay is it the way how you brought him up oh yeah he ate too much chips (laughs) is it because blah 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 is it because he shared a room with me because in our trip we shared a room together Mm. you know she'll she'll diagnose it and she'll probably speak to like some fortune teller in china to try and diagnose it She, she would make that and it's just but I think I think as a yeah I was gonna say I I think it's the same position for me as well like it's on a kind of need to know basis and the reason we don't kind of announce it to everyone else like more liberal western families do is because we have that extra element where there's all this like why and there's a lot of judgment and there's a lot Mm. of praying and there's a lot of burning incense Mm. and praying to ancestors it's just like (laughs) so many ancestors yeah (laughs) for me as a as a as a straight person, I feel I need to do better with raising awareness and protecting the gay community. I did go through a phase where I was like, my brother's gay. So I, I did good representation because my brother's gay. I support the gay community because I go to Pride. I think just because I have someone very close to me who's gay, and just because I go to Pride and get absolutely shit based, <laughs> doesn't like my allyship is there but I feel you we need to do better we need to be we need to start calling things out we need to start having these uncomfortable conversations we need to start getting the awareness out there and that's part of the reason and that is completely out of my comfort zone and and I do feel quite quite crap about myself sometimes when I do think oh I think I am like the world's best ally it's like I'm not I'm not the world's best ally because this is this is exactly it these these are the things where it's actually quite uncomfortable when we when we talk about what it's like in in our families and in our culture because one of the obvious um solutions is well we should just tell people like the family shouldn't Mm. hide it but but Mm. there's just no way there's no way that I'm going to say to my mum and dad like you just need to get over it because actually I personally don't care if everyone knows like I don't care what they say but what I'm really concerned about is that my parents won't be able to handle all the all the gossip all the calls Mm. all the all the hassle and that doesn't affect me it affects them and Mm -hmm. they're just not like they're our parents you know there's just for me 
when people expect everyone to be accepting and they ignore the cultural aspects of it. Well, I, I, that, that's quite, I feel that that would be quite selfish if I did that without their blessing, without their consent. If my parents aren't ready to be able to send a family Christmas card to Hong Kong saying, oh, by the way, Suki's in a relationship with a boy and he's a partner at a law firm, uh, you know, <laughs> then that, 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 that's not, that is not my decision. It actually, yeah. like, it, whilst it does affect me, it affects me a lot less than it affects my parents. I think it's just like, you know, coming out is that your story, but then it's protecting our parents as well. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of respecting them. And, and yeah, we could be like, look, just get over it. I'm just going to tell everyone you're just going to have to deal with it. And you could do that because it's it's your life. But only from, I guess, yours and also from my brother's perspective as well. Like my dad, for example, we haven't spoken about this, but we all just know that if she does know, it would just be never ending for my mum. And, mm. and, and I guess that's part of the reason why we're just going to like not announce it to her. Is this is this part of it that I think white British people or Western people won't understand? And I think um I think pretty much any East Asian family or kids of our generation, LGBT or whoever they are, they will mm-hmm. whether it's like being gay or whether there's some other family secret, they will understand how it works mm-hmm. in our community. And it's just not worth the hassle. It's very much on a need to know basis. And I, I think I've got uh, enough of a balance with my immediate family and the family that yeah. need to know. And yeah. it, it doesn't need to really go further than that. But it is still, there's still lots of areas in my life where like, I just really wish I could be more honest about it. Even recently, I was down in London for a meeting, meeting a kind of Chinese contact. And she was asking me, oh, are you married? Are you single? I should have just said, like, I'm gay. But I didn't. And I didn't. Actually, I kind of felt ashamed that there's there's still that part of me that's protecting my Asian professional identity. And I can make excuses about it and just say, my sexuality shouldn't be part of this conversation. I, I didn't say that either. I just outright lied and just say, oh no, I'm single. I should I just, yeah, I do feel very uncomfortable about why I still do that because she's not even family. And I'm worried mm-hmm. about like how it will affect my career and mm-hmm. like how strangers will view me, which mm-hmm. like, I want to say I don't care, but mm-hmm. my actions betray me. And I, I like, so that's something that I think I will still have to continue to work through, but yeah. it's yeah, it's just it's just very it's just very uncomfortable being put in that position. Yeah. I think it's because it was kind of on the on the spot mm. that she asked you, and then it's just the thought to to respond back accurately just wasn't there at that time. Yeah. So where can people find you if they want to drop you a little message to say hi? I mean, so I am on Twitter. I am on Instagram, but my account is private. To be honest, I I have been thinking about making it not private. I want to take inspiration from you, from the BC (laughs) girls, and just be a bit braver 
and be a bit louder mm-hmm. because honestly like all of you have been such a huge inspiration over the last Aww. year you've got Vivial you've got Amy Fung you've got Carly Wu you've got like yeah. Holly of Edge London Veg Pack yeah and then you yeah, know yeah. I met lo- Chicken Mama and I met loads of people at the B Scene Birthday Bash as well including yeah. uh, David Cam of Kind Red Packet who yeah video hi David and, yeah, and so yeah. I, I like I I just want to be a little bit braver and I, I I'm not going to be kind of out there like you guys are but I I want to I want to do my bit because like the Chinese Trippy Girl podcast for Mui Mui I don't want to see other people like me like us having to go through life having to go through all of this feeling quite so alone and I think if someone else says it kind of becomes a bit more validating I think what we've you know said today is is something that we all we're almost a little bit too scared to say like mm. yes being british born chinese british east asian and being gay in this country is difficult well i think i think it's like you're saying like it's really important to start speaking about this and, and i was just going to say even if your instagram profile is private just keep it private if that's what you're comfortable with i think the main thing is is to when you're ready to step out of that comfort zone and to have that conversation with people and just to be brave and just be confident. And it doesn't matter if your profile's private on Instagram. It doesn't matter if um, you're not going to all these like protests or demonstrations. I think that for me, the main thing is just like listen to people, listen to other marginalized communities, doing some research on them, uh, reading books, listen to podcasts, and uh, just basically just becoming a, a better person, being confident with yourself and becoming a better ally, not just because you've got a gay friend or a Chinese friend and oh, stuff. Does it make I, you an ally? I think you just have to, you know, really work at that. So so. I, I tell you what, I, I will be at... Um, Conji Club in Manchester on the 30th of November. So if anyone's going, I will be there and I would love to meet more people. I went to just speaking of Conji Club. So it's run by the Hannah Rico, and Rob. Yeah. Little Yellow Rice Co. I love them. I went to the supper club in uh, oh. Hackney Chinese Community Centre. It's so good. Then, oh my God, the Heinies chicken. Heinies? Is that how you pronounce it? Heinies. Yeah. <laughs> the Heinies chicken is so nice. It was like so soft. And it was so nice. And just like the whole, the whole course was amazing. We started off with, with coffee, which I thought was quite unusual, but it worked out so well. The whole, when, when Hannah put the courses together, she t- kind of took us on a journey from, you know, her, her great grandfather to her great grandma. And oh, it was so beautiful. But yes, I love Little Yellow Rice Co. They're so good. And if I was in Manchester, I'd be at Conjure Club as well, because I love Conjure. <laughs> love it. Who does it? Love it. Thank you so, so much no, for for coming on the show and for sharing your story. Can I get a selfie just for yeah. a personal collection? <laughs> okay, one, two, three. <laughs> Thank yeah. you so, so much no, for your time. And, and I will speak to you soon. Excellent. Take care. Night, night. Bye. <laughs>